This is a podcast by the RASC Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, Amy, and welcome to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. Hello, Owen. It's always good to chat. We're here on the Australian Property Podcast with a pretty simple mission. We're trying to be the most trusted property podcast in Australia. So far, so good. We've got uh, so many loyal listeners already, which is wonderful. And uh, today is uh, we're going to be talking about a kind of educational episode of sorts where we're going to talk about the risks of property. Now, Amy, obviously you're the expert in this conversation, but I deal with risks on the other side of the fence with personal finances, with the more financial planning and investing side of things. And all I see when I look out the window these days are risks and where people can go wrong. Yeah. (laughs) You've been kind enough to bucket these risks as they apply to property into kind of six buckets or categories, and each of them deserve their own explanation. So hopefully I can prompt you through that. But Maybe just to set the scene, can you explain why it is very important to even consider risk and how you kind of think about it, generally speaking? Yeah. So with anything in life, we always take risks. We take risk when we go outside and get in the car and go for a drive. We take risks in every aspect of life. But when it comes to property, I categorize these from a high level as financial risks but then also personal risks and more situational risks. And this applies to pretty much everyone because most of us will live in a home, whether that is a home that we've purchased to live in or it's a place that we're renting or it also applies to if you're buying an investment property as well. And when it comes to risks, my job as a buyer's agent is to minimise risk as much as possible through the service that I provide. So doing my due diligence and educating Mm -hmm. my clients and guiding them through the process. But the reality is risk in pretty much everything can never be completely eliminated. It can be reduced with planning and due diligence and thought and effort and time. But then from there, you still need to acknowledge the risk that's left over, weighing up the worst case scenario versus the probability, and then making a decision on mm-hmm. how you feel going forward. And that can then depend on your risk profile too. There's so many different facets of this that we'll get to in a minute, but um, can you maybe just characterize what you would think of if you have someone with say a higher risk profile in property? I'm familiar with what that might look like in the share market, but what might that look like for someone in property versus maybe someone that is more risk averse? Like what type of things are they looking for? So when it comes to property, if we're considering around finance risk, for example, someone who is perhaps a little bit more tolerant to risk might be okay with 
uh, stretching their budget a little bit more or leaving less buffer left over when it comes to assessing their budget and committing to a mortgage and saying, she'll be right, we'll figure it out later, I really want this property and I'll make it work somehow in comparison to someone who wants to preserve much more left over and they'll say, well, look, I'm happy to compromise on the location or the property itself because I just don't want to have any kind of financial stress or pressure moving forward. Or they want to have a bigger buffer account versus someone who is happy to have less in the bank Mm -hmm. and who is prepared to take that risk. Mm -hmm. I must admit, um, as you know, I worked with Chris for when I bought this house and uh, uh, I remember the first phone call with him. He's like, "Uh, so how much do you want to borrow? And he's like, 100%. I was like, oh, no, I think I don't want to do that. So like that maybe is a like a preference that I had of like, oh, maybe that's too much, you know, uh, and that maybe isn't my example. Maybe I'm not as risk seeking as I think, but um, can you, you touched on finance risk there, which is one of the, the first things that we wanted to cover. Can you just talk about what is this risk and how does it go wrong? And then maybe we'll jump into like the different ways to reduce that risk or mitigate that risk. Yeah, sure. So when I'm considering finance risk, buying a property, one of the elements of that comes into at the very beginning when you are looking at your cash flows and then approaching the purchase process. So this is a case of determining how much you want to spend on a property and just because the bank will lend you a certain amount doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily mean you should borrow that. This is taking into consideration things like interest rate rises, what would you do if you lost your job or had a change in circumstances, or if you purchased with a low deposit and then you weren't able to refinance if you had to. So when it comes to doing all of that thorough planning in the pre-purchase phase, you really need to be thorough because once you've got that loan and committed to that purchase and mortgage, then then you've got to make those repayments every month and what happens if something goes wrong or, you know, you you are temporarily um, experiencing less income coming in. So the way that you assess that risk is by having a very, very clear understanding of your cash flows. So how much you're earning, how much you could potentially earn, what all of your debts are, how much you've got left over. And then from there, how much buffer you feel comfortable committing to that purchase going forward. And and if that changed in the future, mm. how would you mitigate that risk? And this could be potentially through, you know, personal insurances, income protection, having um, really diligent savings in place after you purchase so you keep building your buffer up, et cetera. So having um, a thorough plan in case things do go wrong and your circumstances change. I imagine quite a few people over the last few years were probably rushing to buy because of that fear of missing out and they really did stretch themselves to, quote, unquote, get on the property ladder, only to find that then interest rates went up. So they were even more stretched, uh, which I can only imagine is a pretty scary spot. You know, I'm fortunate I didn't have to stretch myself as much as that, but um, still it's, it's hurting right now with the, the oh, variable interest so rate. Much. Oh, and I feel absolutely terrible for everyone. I'm you and I, we're homeowners, oh, and we've experienced this as well. Mm. Our cash flows have just completely changed over the last couple of years, but certainly the people who were under the impression that rates were not going to change anytime soon, they mm. potentially leveraged themselves up or borrowed more than they should have and didn't factor in how those future rate rises might impact them because not only have they risen, they've risen at an unprecedented rate Mm. and that is really painful. And if they didn't have a buffer, 
And especially if they purchased with a low deposit, they might not necessarily be in a position now where they can go and refinance and find a better interest rate. Yeah, those really stressed mortgage um, or property owners who find themselves in those unfortunate situations. There is, um, before we jump to that, actually, there was something in our notes, which is that the risk for even people that have in the purchasing process, Amy, pre-approval, I think a lot of people assume, and I think maybe even I assumed this, was that um, once you've got pre-approval, it's all smooth sailing from there. Can you talk through some of the risks about, uh, around that and maybe some misconceptions? Yeah, sure. So once you've done all of that pre-purchase planning, the next step is when you're ready to go and buy a property, you ideally obtain a pre-approval from a bank. And the best kind of pre-approval you can get is what's called a fully assessed pre-approval. So that lender has right. checked everything really thoroughly. They have gone through every nook and cranny of your personal financial situation. And from there, though, they will provide you with a pre-approval, but that is not a complete guarantee that they will provide you finance because it's called a conditional pre-approval. So it is conditional upon a couple of things. Sometimes it might be straightforward things that you know you can definitely do, like go and close a credit card or pay off a certain amount of hex debt, whatever it is. But then from there... It's also subject to your personal situation not changing. So you have a little bit of control over that, but not complete mm. control. Uh, lending policy can change or if interest rates rise, then that can reduce your pre-approval and some lenders will then change the amount that they're happy to lend you if rates do go up. But then it will also be subject to a bank valuation. So the bank then saying, hey, Owen, you've bought this property. I'm mm. happy with not only the price you've paid, but I'm happy with the type of the property that you've purchased. So, and the catch 22 is you can't get the bank valuation done until you've bought the property. Uh, so yeah. what that means is the, the, the main way that you can eliminate this risk entirely is by being what's called subject to finance, which means that your offer is conditional upon your finance being approved. And if it's not, you can then withdraw from the contract but you can't be subject to finance in all situations. For example, mm -hmm. going to auction, you can't be subject to finance. Or if you're in a situation where it's a private sale and you really want that property and other people or other offers are unconditional, mm -hmm. if you put a subject to finance clause in, you might miss out on that property or you'll have to pay more in order to make your offer more compelling. So you can't always be subject to finance to protect yourself. So in these situations... The way that you mitigate that risk is by doing a really thorough assessment on what that property is worth through doing a comparable sales analysis and then also having lots of conversations with your broker or lender about, hey, what's the risk of this property potentially not being valued at the mm -hmm. right price and what would I do if that happened? What are my backup plans? And then running that type of property past them to make sure they're okay with it because there are some types of properties which are higher risk to the bank and therefore you may have issues financing them. I think that's a really good point. Um, that process as well, like not people not being aware that, yeah, you've got pre-approval. Yes, you've put in your offer. Yes, it's been accepted. But hey, you've also got to get the bank to come out and have a look at the property because they're the ones that have put their money on the line too, right? Exactly. How about, how about? I know you deal with a lot of, like I imagine you deal with a lot of upgraders, investors, these types of people that are not just, you know, first home buyers. So there's also a risk there when people sell, I guess. So- can you talk to some of the risks around that just briefly? Yeah. So if you're wanting to 
just say you're wanting to upgrade or downgrade or sell your property and Mm. then go and purchase another property. It's not impossible, but it can be quite challenging to align those settlements so that you're able to then settle both properties on the same day. That's the dream world. And sometimes Mm. I can help clients do that. But if not, first of all, you need to understand, well, if I can't do that, either I sell and then I need to buy something. But Mm. what if I don't buy something within that time period? Then you might need to consider alternative accommodation. Are you going to rent? Are you going to stay somewhere else? What are you going to do? Or if you buy first, you might then have to put yourself under pressure to sell within a certain time frame if you can't organize bridging finance or any other kind of short-term finance. So that is always a risk too. And then ideally you're buying and selling in the same market, paying similar prices. But if you sell first and what you want, you can't actually afford because you haven't figured that out, you haven't done your research, you might take a long time to purchase. And if the market goes up in that meantime, then you're exposing yourself to to not being able to afford what you want, making compromises. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I'm actually thinking of a, of a friend that it happened to and it was very hard for them to get back into the market actually. Um, how about you, you, you? So this this is probably a neat way to, to segue into our, our next uh, risk, which is this idea of market risk, which is like obviously something that people have experienced in the last little while, Amy. Um Chris, you know, frequently talks on the show about, you know, borrowing capacities down. Um, there's always talk in the media about property prices falling and then they're rising and then they're falling and then they're rising. Um, and it gets people spooked. So I imagine there's plenty of opportunity for things to go wrong there. Yeah. And the reality is forecasting in the property market is incredibly challenging because it is influenced by so many things. We have a look at what's happened over the last couple of years, interest rates going up, borrowing capacity going down. And yes, it has impacted the market, but nowhere near as much as what a lot of speculators had anticipated. And that's because all of these other factors come into play. Supply has gone down big time. Supply of vendors selling, supply of new construction, sentiment overall has a big impact as well. So if people can't find what they want, they think, oh, well, if I can't find what I want, I still want to get into the market. I'm still going to be proactive here. And also with the recent interest rate pause, even though I know it's gone up a little bit more, there has been some more positive signals coming back into the market where buyers are saying, okay, well, the sky isn't falling. I want to buy a property. I want to do something. Well, now's the time to do it. So there are... There is no way to accurately predict the future. And because it is impossible to predict, the best thing that you could do to reduce your own risk is to buy at the time which is right for you both financially and emotionally and understand that that's the best thing that you can do. So focus on things that you can control, which is your own personal circumstances, and try Mm. and let the noise of the things that you can't control Go by the wayside if you can. I know it's hard. Yeah, it's like it's always difficult, isn't it, to know what's in your control and what's not in your control. Like how would someone, say if we cast our mind back a couple of years or a year or so when the property market in Australia was very hot, you know, there was auctions left, front, centre, things getting sold immediately. Um, how do you kind of control for that risk? How do you protect yourself? Well, you need to take a step back and say, okay, well, why am I buying right now? The market is is strong. 
why have I decided to buy? Is it because I need to buy something? Is it because I'm worried that if I wait even longer and if it goes up anymore, I'll have to com- compromise further. So making an assessment at that point in time. And, and then also, you know, when you're approaching a negotiation, trying to not let yourself get too carried away just because you feel like you're in a rush or you feel like you're battling the market, especially if that property isn't ticking all of your boxes. So always just taking a step back and trying not to let FOMO or fear mm. of missing out cloud your judgment. But sort of one little decision matrix that I like to apply when it comes to assessing the market, because bear in mind, it's very rare that someone says, hey, Owen, now's a really good time to buy. Everything's <laughs> balanced. Nothing's happening. It's not got, It's going sideways. So think of it like this. At this point in time, if you purchased a property and the market went down, but you were really happy with that property and it ticked all of your boxes, is would you feel like you'd be in a worse situation compared to the alternative if you don't buy now and the mm. market went up and you'd then have to compromise your brief? So which which situation would you feel more comfortable in? And there's no right or wrong answer there. I'd probably prefer, to be honest, just thinking out loud here, I'd probably prefer to buy and risk overpaying knowing that I was in the property. That's probably my personal preference, but I imagine some investors or some property owners don't think that way. Um, but that's probably how I feel about it. Yeah. Well, I, I, don't, I don't actually love the word overpaying because if you've bought a property that's perfect for you mm. and it ticks all of your boxes and then the market came back a little bit, but you're in that house and you loved it and you're going to be in there for a long time, True. it doesn't actually matter unless you were in a position where you were forced to sell it prematurely and then you experienced a loss. Mm. Yeah. Um, one of the, the risks here that you've got, which I hadn't, haven't come across before, and I think this is because it's a, the, the new medium with property and what have you for me, which is this idea of suitability risk. So can you explain what this means? And I'm sure I'll have a few questions around this. Yeah. So suitability risk is not so much of a tangible financial risk. It's more a personal thing in the case of purchasing a property without having put enough forethought into it and ending up in a type of property or in a location that you're not happy with. Or maybe you hadn't had those thorough conversations with your partner beforehand Mm. and you're happy with it and they're not. Or, you know, you thought you wanted that big house in the outer suburbs to grow into, but then you decide to not have a family or it doesn't happen for you and you're an hour and a half away from your job and that just doesn't work for your lifestyle. So, that's that's what I mean when it comes to suitability risk. I'm sure some people would have been finding this out now in, you know, some of the regional or coastal areas where people migrated to from the cities during COVID. Maybe they've figured out now that some of those other variables like uh, being easy and close to commute um, to the city or to their job, maybe they're finding out now and this risk is kind of coming up for them thinking, we didn't really think three years ahead. We were thinking one or two years ahead and we know that property is a long-term investment. So maybe they're figuring that out now. Yeah, exactly right. Or if you're approaching this from an investment perspective, not considering your cash flows enough and maybe thinking, okay, well, I want to get a really strong capital growth property and I'm totally fine with contributing, you know, a thousand or two thousand dollars a month towards that negative gearing. But then a couple of years later, when it comes time to buy your home, your broker says, well, you you can't. You've got 
too much debt here, your borrowing capacity is reduced, you're not going to be able to buy the home you want, you have to go sell that investment prematurely, might not have performed yet, would owe maybe owe you money and you just hadn't put that um, planning into it. Well, that's actually that's actually brings us to another risk, which is the idea for investors, like the risk that they face, which may be unique from people that are buying a home to live in. Um, can you talk us through some of the risks or threats to the idea of property as an investment and some of the ways people go wrong? And obviously, I'm eager to find out how we can mitigate those and control or at least be aware of them. Yeah, well, one of the, one of the risks is what we just mentioned, which is buying an investment property because you think that's the right thing to do, but then not mm. considering how it might impact your future home purchase planning. I mean, you might already have a home and you're leveraging and that, that's okay, but if you want to upgrade your home later on, will that investment property impact those plans? And it, it may or may not, but have you thought about it? So you can speak with a mortgage broker now and say, hey, if I wanted to borrow X in a couple of years for a home, how would an investment property with these cash flows impact that plan? Mm. Just having a bit of planning or speaking to a financial planner if you if you are opting to do that as well. There is also, when it comes to investing, there's cash flow risk. So when you purchase a property, your cash flows are, once the rent comes in and all of the expenses go out, you are left over with either having to contribute money, so you're negatively geared, mm-hmm. or you might have money coming in positively gearing and that's great, but that can change over time. So just because that's that now, if you had increased interest rates or you had an extended period of vacancy, or again, if you lost your job or something happened where you didn't have that money, then you need to plan for that and budget Mm. for that and not just assume it's always going to be the same. Okay. Also can be, yeah, like risk to your, the the ongoing part of the management of that property and um, not getting rent or if there's like locking in rent and then interest rates go up and mm. it creates that kind of dispersion between the two. That's right. Well, investors who purchased when interest rates were in the, you know, twos and threes percents and now, especially because for an investor, the interest rate is often higher than mm. for an owner-occupier, all of a sudden that investment property is costing them maybe double per month what it used to. And property prices have come down too. So they've been double hit. So it's more just planning for those things ahead. And you just don't want to put yourself in a position where, again, you have to sell a property before you're ready just because you haven't got the cash flows to support that property. Cash flow risk is obviously something that investors in particular face because of, like you said, higher borrowing costs and a few other variables. Um and how we ha- fix that, Owen? We yeah, how, to solve for, how to solve for it, I guess. <laughs> so first of all, when you're buying an investment property, you know, popping a spreadsheet together, it doesn't have to be anything fancy and then stress testing that. So playing around with interest rate changes, playing around with, you know, if the rent went down a little bit in the future, if you had a month of vacancy, what would that look like? Could you afford that? Having mm. a really good understanding of the rental market, what's the demand there like? What are vacancy rates like? Speak to local property managers to get their insight. Hey, what what type of properties lease really well in this area? You know, how long are properties taking to lease on average? Obviously, that can change in the future. Mm. Um, and then when it comes to minimizing vacancy, too, when it in in rental markets, not so much right now in certain parts of Melbourne and Sydney, which are going a little bit bonkers, Absolutely. but tenants can 
be quite price sensitive, especially in more regional areas or at lower price points. So you need to price your property right. And if it's not leasing, you need to be proactive and consider reducing that rent because every $10, $20 makes a big difference for tenants. For sure. Which um, which this idea of obviously a lot of investors get into property, use that income, that rental income to offset a loan or to even earn positive income. Uh, but it doesn't always go according to plan. Like some tenants, you know, are great, some not so great, Amy. Yeah, that's right. And that is always a risk when it comes to leasing your property out to essentially what is a stranger. Mm. <laughs> you can do as much or your property manager, if you have a great property manager, should do as much reference checking as possible but things can change and that tenant's life can change and they can go into hardship and they might not be able to pay the rent or they might not respect your property as much as they should. And that is always uh, a bit of a fear for an investor when they purchase a property. But but again, ways to fix that, you know, having a great property manager and if your property manager changes over time and you're not happy with the new one, go and find another one. You're not locked into them. And always, of course, making sure you have the appropriate insurances in place. Mm. Just out of uh, curious, what kind of insurances would they be? Is there a particular type of insurance or assurances that people should be looking out for? Yep. So always having your building insurance if you're not within a strata. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. you'll have building insurance included in strata. But then also as a landlord, you should always have landlord insurance and that can cover you for things say uh, if that tenant breaks their lease and you experience a loss of rent for example or tenant damage things like that you need to make sure that you're on top of it if something goes wrong get all the paperwork together get that application in Um, but yeah having that and it's not Mm. it's not an expensive insurance considering what it covers Mm. um Okay, so switching gears, we've got two more big risk buckets that I want to cover. One of them is uh, obviously when you buy, when you're buying a property, one of the things that goes through everyone's mind is, is that is that black mold or is that mold over there? Is that water damage in the roof? Yep. It's so many things that could go wrong, and people feel like they're not capable of, you know, inspecting a property effectively or looking for these problem areas in advance. So. How do you think about the risk of a building or a property and how do you mitigate that? Mm. So when it comes to buying a property, this is this is one of the risks which you can't actually completely eliminate. And that's because there are restrictions or limitations when it comes to building inspections, for example. Right. So just say you're buying a, a townhouse or a house or a villa unit, that building inspector can walk through that property. They can do as thorough of an assessment as they can, but they might not be able to get under the house. They might not be able to get into the roof or see certain parts of that house. And especially if that house is full of furniture, they mm. can't move all of the, that around. So there will always be limitations there. So, and this kind of comes back to when we're talking about risk profiles, your building inspector might say, hey, I'm just not able to get access to a lot of this property and I can't completely comment and, you know, there might be hidden risks here, I'm not sure. And then it's up to you if you're comfortable with that. So if you're happy to do some works or take on the risk that there could be problems, you've got a big buffer, you might be more comfortable than if you Mm. just aren't willing to do any kind of renovations or if something goes wrong, you don't have much leftover cash to fix it. And that is also an issue when it comes to apartment blocks. So a building inspector 
can't inspect that entire apartment block. And yes, there should be thorough notes in the strata meetings and minutes, especially if there were historical issues. But then going forward, you have less control over that. And issues can take time with big apartment blocks, like we've seen a lot of problems over the years with the ones in Sydney, for example. They can take time to come up. You might purchase it now and it's okay, but in a couple of years, there might be some problems and you Mm. can't eliminate that risk entirely. But the way that you can approach it is by just ensuring that you get those inspections done or as much as you can and speaking with the strata, doing a strata search, speaking to the body corporate manager, et cetera. One of the solutions to many parts of all of these risks is to have a buffer, to have that emergency buffer. What what am I going to lean on if things go wrong? Yeah, and you can pull that cash and and use it for something. Yeah, I, I mean, we've all heard the horror stories and they, they frequently pop up about the things that go wrong after people buy a house. And we talk a lot about all the different things that happens, happen during the building phase if people are considering buying off the plan and, you know, mm. new housing developments and so on. But it, it's kind of all properties as well. you just got to keep your wits about you. Um, Amy, the, the real risk that I want to talk to you about, this is the final one, it's one that I'm really interested in, is this idea of there being some sort of like personal risk attached to buying a property or to owning a property. And in particular, the impact that relationships can have on people buying properties and owning properties, whether it's together or it's family, friends, partners, future partners, someone coming into the house, so many different things. So, How do you detangle this risk and what are some of the variables that people need to factor in? Yeah. So when you're you're buying a property and it's just you purchasing that property, yes, it's going to be maybe a little bit more challenge Mm. financially, but you don't have anyone to answer to anyone else to answer to. You can make your own decisions. But when you're in a relationship, you're dealing with someone else's uh, financial habits and, you know, background and their attitude towards money and risk tolerance and all of those things. And quite often you might be on a different page when it comes to how you approach money, but then property, where you want to live, what you want to live in, what you're tolerant to, you know, which mm-hmm. one's okay to do renovations and the other one doesn't, all of those things. So it's it's actually quite common that I, I speak with couples and they're just not on the same page and they think they're ready to buy a property, but they're absolutely not. They need to agree beforehand because otherwise if they start searching, and then they one person finds something and the other person's not on board, that can be really, really difficult, really that can it can create tension and upset. So you want to avoid that beforehand, but then very much so before you actually purchase that property and then you're living in it together. And maybe, you know, you've stretched the budget and one person didn't want to do that or they don't feel comfortable or they're the breadwinner and the other person um, is the one that pushed it. And just, you know, you you don't want to put yourself in that situation where your property causes conflict in your relationship because you haven't thought about it in enough detail. That's it's I, I I hear what you're saying, but I almost think in some instances that would be pretty tough. That's a pretty tough conversation, right? Because imagine like you're listening to this Australian property podcast episode, you're thinking, okay, what Amy's saying is making a lot of sense. Um and I'm all aboard with like trying to minimize some of these risks. And then your partner comes in, they're not listening to the podcast. They don't know. But they've got their their parents or their friends in their ear saying, you should buy this thing off there and go and buy off the plan over here. And you're thinking, maybe not this good, not good idea kind of thing. Yeah. Um, can you get experts involved in this? Like, can someone get support in any way or? 
Yeah, in a couple of ways. And I think before you even approach getting support, if you can't have the com- the hard conversations with your partner beforehand about money and mm-hmm. life goals, like that's the first step, right? Have the, and especially to have transparency too, especially if you have separate bank accounts, nothing wrong with that, but having transparency over, you know, your money priorities and where all the cash is going, et cetera. Um, and then you might consider speaking to a financial planner to to help align your own personal financial goals going forward. And then depending on which what what's your comfort level is or maybe if you're especially in a fresh relationship or haven't been together for very long, you might then seek the advice from a lawyer, um, say a family lawyer or an estate planner, to sit down and create an agreement and say, okay, if things go wrong, who what, what will happen? What's the exit plan? What does that look like? Who's contributing what? Who will get what? And a lawyer needs to be involved there to ensure that it is as uh, enforceable as possible. Mm. And I'd say that's just as important for friends and family members as it is for, you know, if you're going into it as an investment, you know, with friends or something like this, or it's a business transaction, you should treat it almost like that. That's my opinion, Amy. Oh, even more when it comes to buying with friends and family, because you're probably going to be even less aligned with your future goals than what you would be with a spouse or a partner. And you're kind Mm -hmm. of moving in the right direction. And I've actually had a situation where some friends of mine bought with their siblings. So there's actually four people on that title. One person now wants to sell and the other three don't. And they didn't go into that with a plan. And now it is actually causing some issues in their relationship. You just, you don't want that. That's, mm-hmm. that's, um, that's really something you want to avoid. Yeah. And I, this happens too with guarantors, if I'm not mistaken, like some of the banks, or I think all banks, like they get the, the parents in to talk or they have a chat with them and say, can you sign this, 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 and do you understand the risks? And um, so they're taking it seriously because they don't want to be the third party in or fourth party in some of these situations as well. Yeah. And especially if you are, say you're purchasing with a partner, Owen, and your parents are going guarantor on that loan. And then what happens if you break up, but your partner still wants to stay in that property, you know, but your mm-hmm. parents are guarantor, like it becomes a bit messy and more complicated there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, approaching all of this, every single one of these risks can be mitigated with forethought and planning and thinking about, okay, what are we hoping to achieve? But what are the worst case scenarios? How would we mm-hmm. deal with those? Are they acceptable if they could happen? And what would and what would we do? What would be our contingency plans? Mm. I um I really resonated with your point before about having those upfront conversations with your significant other because I find that that often roots out a lot of other issues like in a good way because it helps you deal with them and I think property is one of those things where people are extra emotional because you don't need to you know be a financy person to know how important this is in your life Um, and it's a big commitment from two people so I don't know if you have any thoughts or ideas or even just really simple tips around people talking about property in a relationship but uh, if there's anything you've been that you've seen effective in the past? Yeah. So before you go out and seriously start consider considering looking at properties or even getting a pre-approval or anything, just making sure you're on the same page with what I call your property brief. That's a combination of your budget. So making sure you're both happy to spend that amount of money and mm. commit to that mortgage and who's who's contributing what, like some relationships 
if one person's earning more, you might say, okay, well, you're then going to contribute more to that mortgage. Or you might say, no, it's 50-50, but figure it out beforehand. And then making sure you're on the same page with your locations you want to be and what that property looks like. So your non-negotiables. And you can even write it down separately and then sit down together and compare it and see if it aligns. And if not, you might have to negotiate and compromise to then make sure that strategy is achievable moving forward. Mm. I think that's where getting an expert like yourself to help you sit down and plan that. Uh, I'm a mediator, Owen. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Like we're all in the business of emotions, right? Well, uh... I had one recently (laughs) where this client, um, he, they just couldn't find what they wanted. And I said, well, the, the problem is to me, it was very clear and he needed or wanted a double garage, but the suburbs that she wanted to live in, they're just what properties do not exist with double garages in that those particular <laughs> suburbs. You'd be lucky to get a single garage in the inner part of Melbourne. And I said, that's that's the issue. You need to come to a conclusion where you either move further out or you compromise on the double garage. You need to both decide what you're going to do. Because if you're on if you're moving down this path, you're not going to buy anything. Yeah. And they eventually got to the point where they say, okay, well we're going to just be okay with a carport to stay Mm. in those suburbs because otherwise it just, it was already starting to form cracks in, yeah, their approach to it. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, So just to recap here, we've got the the six buckets of risk. We've got finance risk and everything involved, whether that's pre-purchase, whether it's the cash flows after you purchase or even selling. Uh, We've got market risk, buying too high, well, not too high, but buying at the peak um, and how to think about that. Suitability risk, which is a new one for me, is just this idea of are you thinking ahead and that's where your property brief and dealing with uh, an expert will help you. Building risk, obviously, there too. Amy, special shout out to Amy. She uh, has created a a 100-point checklist of things for you to consider and she's got it in a PDF. So if you are interested in the PDF, it's free. Just click the link in the, the the player, the podcast player, if you're watching the video below the video, uh, and just pop in your email address and Amy will email it to you. Um, the other one was this idea of personal risk or relationship risk, which is probably the thing that always kind of challenges me and my skills as a financial educator. And finally, the, the risks that are inherent for investors. Again, you've got cash flows, you've got tenants risk, and a whole bunch of other things that sit underneath that. So... Hopefully, we've had a bit of an exploration. I think each of these topics deserve their own podcast, Amy, but uh, (laughs) I think you are a fantastic field guide in taking us through all of them. So once again, thanks for joining us. There are links in the show notes uh, to get in contact with Amy if you're interested in uh, learning about property. Uh, Amy's course is brilliant, or you can uh, check out uh, her buyer's advocacy as well uh, based out of Melbourne. So check that out. It's all in the show notes. Amy, as always, it's a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Owen. See you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big. 
so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Before you go, I wanted to share some things with you. Specifically, I wanted to tell you about the 10 ways that RASC could help you in 2024. As many of you know, RASC has grown to become one of the biggest investing and finance platforms in Australia. Across our podcasts, our websites, our memberships, and so on, we now engage around 200,000 Aussies, which considering we started in a humble lounge room on a Kmart desk, one of those old fake white wooden ones, I'm pretty ecstatic about where we are six years later. As part of becoming one of Australia's biggest platforms for wealth creation and preservation, we now have a very special position in the country in that we can bring you some of the best, most thoughtful, expert-driven ways to protect and grow your wealth. And I'm going to share some of those with you now. I've got 10 ways that we can potentially help you or match you with someone who can. The first thing that I want to tell you about is the biggest step we've ever taken at RASC, which is the launch of our RASC Invest platform. This is a platform that lets our team, led by me, invest for you, primarily through low-cost, diversified ETFs. We'll have three strategies at launch, and every investor who comes through can pick one of the three strategies being a balanced strategy, a growth strategy, and a high-growth strategy. The balanced strategy focuses on passive income and the high growth strategy focuses on longer term compounding. You will find a link in your podcast player to register your interest. We will be taking off soon. Number two, if you prefer to DIY your investing, you can join me and over 4,000 members inside Rascore. That's our full ETF and ASX share research membership community. You can join now and you'll get updated ETF portfolio recommendations every quarter, as well as ongoing ASX and global stock research. Every single month, we call them the all-star stocks. You get that alongside the ETF portfolios, as well as other members-only content. It's called Rascore. Number three, our first ever partnership with a business other than our own was a business by the name of Blusk, which has since become Flint Group. Flint Group is led by Chris Bates and Christian Stevens, two of Australia's most highly regarded mortgage brokers. Already over 200 RASC community members have begun the RASC plus Flint Group mortgage broking process. You can click the link in your podcast player if you're refinancing, investing, a first home buyer, or whatever. You've probably heard Chris on the show many times. Number four, you can connect with our most trusted financial advisors. Whether you're 25 years old, just graduated uni and looking to set yourself up or approaching or in retirement and you've got that nest egg you want to protect and generate a passive income from, you can get in contact with our trusted panel of financial advisors. You can find the link in your podcast player. It's there each and every week. Just click the thing that says financial planning. Number five, if you want specialist insurance advice, as Warren Buffett said, rule number one is don't lose money. And rule number two is don't forget rule number one. Insurance is vitally important, especially when it comes to your number one asset, you. Whether you're a single income household or a couple and you just want to protect what would happen if. You want to protect your family if something goes wrong. You want to protect your spouse if you lose your job. You want to protect yourself 
if you hurt yourself on the weekend at footy, insurance is a way to do that. And I think the best way to do insurance is through a financial planner. And there's a few reasons for that. But one of them is sometimes some insurers will only work with financial advisors, but they can also be your companion as you go through the sometimes daunting process of getting insurance done properly. Sometimes you might not even know, but you're not even covered, even though you think you are. So get the right advice. You'll find a link in the show notes to check that out. Number six, buying property. If you're like me and you're thinking of buying property in the next 12 months, or maybe you've already invested and you're looking to downsize, getting the right advice and being able to build wealth through property is a proven strategy. It might be one of the most contentious, but I think that we have one of Australia's best property coaches in our ranks. That is Pete Wargen. Pete is the host of the now super popular Australian property podcast by Rask, and he's also my analyst team's macro consultant. So if you're a member of Rascor, you will have seen Pete's name around the traps. He's a property coach and buyer's agent, and he works with a select number of people each and every year. Just a note on this. This is not a commercial thing with Pete. Pete just has great services, so we offer them to the community. And when he fills up, he fills up. You can find out more about Pete's coaching in the show notes. Next up, tracking your portfolio for tax. I think you are because I think you have to. So we've partnered with Nevexa to help you manage your share and ETF reporting, whether it's tax or performance. All RASC users get 20% off an annual plan with Nevexa. You can sync your portfolio with Nevexa's software and it automatically tracks your dividends, your capital gains tax, and more. Again, not a commercial partnership. We don't make anything from working with Nevexa, but they do create some great tools which the RASC community uses each and every day. Number eight, want to run your own business? Maybe you already do. If you want more profit, but less stress, less time consumed, and less energy lost, get in contact. We have a partner business called Inflection. The Inflection Accelerator Program is a complete online course that helps you and a community of members engage and follow a proven strategy for growing your business. I'm grateful to be one of the coaches inside the Accelerator program, helping business owners right across Australia. You can find more following the link in your podcast player. It's the one that says coaching. Number nine, if you haven't already checked it out, join over 20,000 other people who tune into the Rask YouTube channel. It is completely free and you get notified when we go live and when we publish podcast episodes. There is a podcast on the Rask network each and every day, as well as bite-sized material that's less than 60 seconds or those really punchy tutorials and webinars that are just 15 minutes that take you through a really exciting topic, whether it's how to buy a property, whether it's how to pick a dividend ETF. Some of our most popular content actually just explains things like, what the heck is franking credits and how do I calculate if I've got some? That's on our YouTube channel. Number 10, if you want to be a better investor, a saver, a better partner with money, or just understand your own relationship with money, you can do that all of that by going to the Rask Education website and taking a free course. We've enrolled over 26,000 students at the time of this recording, and we're on a mission to get to 100,000 in the next few years. Rask Education is our mostly free education platform covering everything from budgeting and automation to the probably, I would say, the best value investing program in the country. So whether you're a value investor, an intermediate investor, you want to know how to value Woolworths shares, or you simply just 
want to understand what ethical investing is or buy your first property and what actually happens on settlement day, head to the RASC Education website and enroll in something today. It is free and it supports us because then I can come on here next month and I can say we've got 27,000 and hopefully we reach critical mass where we can help more Australians manage their money better. Thank you for listening to this long-winded ad. If you want to get in contact with me, you know where to go. There's a link in your show notes. Basically, these 10 services, even though some of them we don't make any money from, support RASC and allow us to produce these podcasts, attract the biggest and best guests from Australia and around the world, and bring them to you to answer your questions. Thank you for being part of the RASC network, and thank you for your ongoing support. Bye for now.